We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The first wave of punk rock growled out of the economic and social malaise of New York and London in the mid-1970s. But Los Angeles played a huge role in what came next, when punk's energetic DIY ethos began to diversify, cross genres, and sprawl like the vast city itself. That's the song Los Angeles from the seminal L.A. punk band X. Three years ago, X's singer and bassist John Doe and music publisher Tom DeSavia pulled together first-hand accounts of the nascent scene from members of L.A.'s tight-knit punk community. The resulting book, Under the Big Black Sun, was nominated for a Grammy. The follow-up, More Fun in the New World, covers 1982-88. to when L.A. bands like the Go-Go's became MTV superstars, when skinheads and hardcore split the scene, and before, as DeSavia puts it, hair metal won the L.A. Sunset Strip Civil War. John Doe will be at the Highland and Ballroom Lounge on Sunday, September 22nd at 2 o'clock to discuss the book and to sign it. And a couple hours later, X will be performing at the Tabernacle. Thrilled to have John Doe and Xine Cervenka, two founders of X, join me now from KPFA in Berkeley, California. Hello and welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Today you can go to the punk section of any record store and find a lot of material, but it did not exist back then. So what was it that drew you, John, young man from Baltimore, or Exene, just what, 19, 20-year-old from from Florida, to the punk scene? Oh, uh, probably just being a contrarian and uh, not fitting in in other bands in Baltimore or being a poet uh, or working in poetry and trying to make a living or, you know, trying to thinking that we could foolishly thinking that we could have a career in music. Well, it seems to have done pretty well so far. You're what, 42 years in rolling. (laughs) So far so good. It was some good accidental planning. It sounds like, well, I think it was fate. Um, Exine moved there maybe six months before I did. And, we met each other and and things happened. Well, in the mid to late 70s, around L.A., there was this big punk scene developing. You had bands like the Screamers, the Germs, the Weirdos, the Dickies, the Zeros, the Dills. Let's hear a little bit from the Dills. This is called Class War. What was that L.A. looking like when you got there? Uh, I didn't go there for music. I, I'd heard some, you know, I had heard Patti Smith and the Ramones in Florida, but my goal to get to Los Angeles was just to get out of Florida. I didn't think past that. And um, I met John, and he told me that there was music being played. But I was a poet. I didn't really sing. I'd never sang. So it was, um, the good thing about punk was anyone could do it. And if you were really good, like, you know, my band is like, you know, like Billy, you know, Billy Zoom. James and great, great, yeah. great. I mean, guitarist. he's the greatest guitar player. Right. So but there were people like Tito Lariva also, who was an amazing musician and singer and songwriter. There were a lot of really talented people, but you didn't have to have anything going for you. You just had to show up and put on some outfit you made up and just have the nerve to get on stage. Punk rock, the popularity gives rise to punk fashion. You know, what started as stick poke tattoos and safety pins as earrings. What What is it like for you watching this happen? Well, I never followed anyone's fashion 
and I never would. So I just made up my own thing, you know, little black sweaters and the rhinestone jewelry and the pins and all that. Um, but I think that's what punk was. I had that. Other people had theirs. You know, there was a book. I forget what that book was that came out. <clears throat> yeah. Jim Jacoy. Jim Jacoy did this book, Cobra Desperate, and it's just his Polaroids from the very early scene, and everybody's in it, and there's no credits of who anyone is. And what's so great about it is it's all in color. And every single person there has a different type of outfit on that they made up themselves. Some have red lipstick and some have safety pins and then they got their spiky hair and then somebody else has on a fedora. It's, it's just a great representation of how eclectic and individual that was. I think what, what's great about punk was it was about the individual. And if there's anything we're headed towards, it's the total annihilation of any individuality. <laughs> so that punk rock thing was just the last gasp of that. And I hope it it became a uniform eventually, and everyone kind of looks the same now, but um, there's still some individuality out there, I think. Was the book named for your song? We're I believe so. Well, then we should hear it. Yeah, let's play We're Desperate. That's We're Desperate from X's 1981 album Wild Gift. John, you write in the book that trickled down, economics trickled somewhere else. And Exine, there's a poem that you wrote, Smokestacks and Steeples. So how aware of the world outside of this bubble of L.A. did you did you feel you were drawing from? Well, I grew up in Illinois. My father was a carpenter. Lived in a small town of a thousand people, stay-at-home moms. Then I moved to Florida when I was 13. Um, I was always acutely aware since I started traveling the United States of what was important and magical and powerful about this country, which is the working man and woman, the stay-at-home moms, the kids, the the America, you know, the old America that I grew up in was quickly vanishing. That's why I wrote New World. And, you know, it's something that I'm still chronicling and still very sad about that um, all our manufacturing went to China and other places and it destroyed the middle class. You see where we're at now with the opioid epidemic and the homelessness. It's you know we we kind of we we knew that was coming. We wrote about it and we saw it happening. We saw the rust belt forming. We saw the rust growing, and so it was a big deal to us touring all the time and traveling all the time and and making friends everywhere to to watch that happen. A couple of the contributors to the book mentioned that as punk develops, this subculture that championed individuality starts to impose its own orthodoxy. And fans start to draw lines in the sand and say, you know, that's punk rock, that's not punk rock. And then they splinter into ska and cowpunk and hardcore. And this line between dancing and just plain fighting starts getting blurred. And this is a split forecasted in some ways by Penelope Spheris' amazing but terrifying documentary about L.A. punk. It's called The Decline of Western Civilization. Here's a clip. I mean, you know, the punks, you know, punks against hippies, that's another thing the hippies are starting. But then again, punks against punks, you know, that's not... It's not what it's meant to be. Well, so, yes, okay, it, so it, things just, they change. See, see that this, this is the odd thing, is that as you're experiencing it, you, you're, you're holding on to something that is evolving. And so when the decline of Western civilization, the, the movie came out, we were mad because it was nihilistic. And it was, it was all these young kids who, were, who, to our mind, were messing up our scene. Well, what we were sad about is that the, the previous scene, you know, a scene from two years before that, which was really open and included the plugs and, uh, and the Go-Go's and the Alley Cats and the Weirdos and all these very eclectic bands, that was, 
that really wasn't happening then. What Penelope Spheris did is that she was showing the way that was changing into this more testosterone-driven, darker thing. So it was actually a, a great uh, representation of what was going on then. Then when, when it's evolving into hardcore taking over or, or you know, having to compete with a, a, on a national stage, then you're like mad because you just want to do your thing, man. <laughs> well, you couldn't. I couldn't go to shows because yeah. of it. I couldn't go see Black Flag. I couldn't yeah, go see any any hardcore bands. I wasn't allowed to be in the audience because you were a woman, Maxine. No, because I was Maxine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people would come up. We we would want to go see our friends like uh, Keith Morris and in his band, The Circle Jerks, or Fear, or you know Flipper, or any of these other bands. And as the hardcore audience came in, they didn't really get it. So they thought, oh, John and Maxine. They've made two LPs, and they've actually sold out the whiskey a few times. So you must be rock stars. Mm. So you're you're not allowed here, and they would give us a bunch of attitude. And, of course, me being 26 at the time would give it right back. And that was, <laughs> that was a losing game. So we just decided, okay, I guess we can't go to those shows anymore. So we would go see Rank and File or Lone Justice or, you know, some rockabilly bands, uh, you know, or Carl Perkins or, or yeah, Big or Joe Turner or <clears throat> Bo Diddley and yeah. people that were still playing at, yeah. at the time. But Well, that, that kind of rockabilly old-time country sounds more aligned with your music anyway, which is not that fast-threshing hardcore. Let's hear a song that gives us a sense of that. This is X's Breathless. also mirrors something because John and I were kind of mentoring kind of like surrogate you know adults for we had a runaway you know lived with us for a while and a lot of kids would knock on our door need help or call us in the middle of the night threatening suicide or something if we didn't come find them and then they wouldn't be there but um <laughs> the thing about it that was weird was this this was this was the suburban and that era was the breakdown of the family. That was the era of divorce. And so in a lot of urban areas, especially in you know places like L.A., there's like, you know, these kids don't have families. They didn't have families. And so they were looking for a family. And when it was just the, all of us together as a group, in the early punk days, if you got drunk, you weren't in any trouble at all. If you were passed out, you'd get home. They'd take you home. Someone would take you home. But in the uh, later scenes, you know, it can be very violent and scary, I think, for kids, you know. And they were alone. And i got to give them a little bit of a break because I think a lot of that violence and anger and misguided, you know, uh, attacks against anyone that wasn't them was just trying to find their family and trying to find some kind of cohesive, you know, runaway situation that they felt safe in. And and maybe they looked at us like their parents that let them down. Who knows? But these kids were doing drugs and stuff early, you know, and it was just a very, a very foreshadowing of where we're at now, I think. I'm speaking with Exine Cervenka and John Doe from the formative punk band X. They're going to be playing in Atlanta with Squeeze on Sunday, September 22nd at the Tabernacle. And John Doe is going to be talking about his new book, More Fun in the New World, earlier in that day at the Highland Inn Ballroom. Well, the new book picks up when the bands that you started yeah. touring started playing, then club bands started touring. They started getting big. You know, they started getting a following. Mm -hmm. They started getting record deals. When one of the bands that comes through the L.A. punk scene goes absolute bananas huge, the Go-Go's.
So we got the beat. The go-go's. People probably don't associate, I think they were called, America's Sweethearts on a magazine cover with the punk scene that produced X or the Weirdos. And, and you know, I get the impression from, from your last book, Xene, your what you wrote in the last book and others, that there was a really tight, supportive, creative community. So what did this huge commercial success mean for people who came up in that community? It meant nothing. It didn't It didn't change anything for anybody else. It wasn't like we all got signed after that, or all of a sudden it was a big deal to be a woman in a band. I think it was just, they were very unique. And I think they were the first band that, that went to number one that was an all-female musician band who wrote their own songs. It was a huge deal. Of course, they should have, they should have done well. I'm glad they did well. Um, it made the us, rest of us feel kind of a little bit left out, of course, because there wasn't really much difference between them and the other bands as far as who we were and what we did with our lives and how we hung out. Well, I think she says something yeah, in, uh, uh, about how they started getting jealous of each other, that, you know, they were arguing with each other over royalties. So this kind of camaraderie was torn asunder. Well, the, you don't get a, a manual <laughs> how to be uh uh, a top 10 band once you enter the top 10. Here's your manual. If you'll refer to page 127, you'll find out what to do when when the drummer finds out that there's actually publishing royalties. <laughs> and, and she loses her mind because you what? Um, it was mystifying to, to all of us that, that the Go-Go's weren't signed earlier. I mean, they were a slam dunk. Are, are you kidding? What? Why can't you sign? Because people wanted to hold on to what became classic rock. There's a very funny story in the book of Dave Alvin, who was then with the Blasters, and now he's a guitarist for X, meeting with record company executives in L.A. playing this new song that he just loved called Kathleen. Can, can you tell us that story? <clears throat> the Blasters had a record on Slash, then the second record was on uh, Warner Brothers. I think this was for the third record, and Dave comes into some A&R you know, meeting, which are always uncomfortable. And... Um, he plays a song he's particularly proud of called Kathleen, and it ends with Gene Taylor, their piano player, doing this extended kind of crazy solo where the rest of the band has fallen away, and he's just just wailing. And, and, uh, and then it ends, and there's this dead silence, and that's usually a bad sign when there's dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then this young A&R guy says to Dave, says, oh, man, that's... That's really something. That's that's great. I, your fans are going to love it. It's just, it just sounds too much like the Blasters. <laughs> and at that point, Dave just his heart sank, and he wanted to freaking kill the guy. And you know, and, and he just thought, oh, okay. How am I going to write songs that sound like the Blasters, but that somehow translate to this moron? Well, so that he will try to go out and sell it to the people. Because, you know, really what had happened in, in that, um, you know, say from 1981 to 86, is that we weren't just making songs to, you know, and I'll include X in this as well. We weren't making just songs like just making stuff up and just playing it for our, you know, friends and things like that. We were suddenly competing, in quotes, with everybody else that was making records. Yeah. That's how the record companies looked at it. I don't think that punk rock was really co-opted until years later, you know, when Green Day and Rancid actually were in the top 10. And I like Billy Joe. I think he's a good songwriter. I think that the Green Day has got some great songs and <clears throat> and so does Rancid. 
Um, there's some other bands that I, I don't care for from that era, but that was when it, it actually got to the audience it was designed for, which is kind of teenagers who are feeling rebellious. And they, you know, in, in 78, it was bohemians and it was artists and it was people that just were, you know, didn't, didn't want to fit in or didn't fit in. So, you know, when it gets into hot topic, then you can say, oh, God, <laughs> it's <this> gone. Is, <laughs> you know, then you could maybe say punk is dead, but it's not because it's an attitude and it's a, you know, that that's also part of the book. And that's what we're doing, you know, playing nowadays is uh, we're actually working on some new material and we're, um, we're we have kind of a, a different show these days because we play some really deep cuts where DJ, our drummer, plays vibes and Billy the guitar player plays saxophone. Um, we do these really slow songs and, and weird songs that we never played. You know, punk rock is an ethos, and that's why we go into the whole legacy element of it with having Shepard Ferry and Allison Anders and Tim Robbins write chapters because they were inspired by the the era of from 82 to 87 to take that <clears throat> ethos and apply it to their art. So... Allison wanted to make a movie and people wouldn't give her money. So they just raised money somehow and they just made a movie. And Tim Robbins wanted to have uh, stage performances, but didn't want to have the same old, same old, can't break the fourth wall kind of nonsense. So he did his thing and Shepard Ferry wanted to make art, but he didn't want to do fine art. So he said, okay, what's this street art thing? Shepard was inspired by that. And, you know, now you could say he's arguably the most influential artist in, you know, that's alive. So, Well, yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, there's so much unrest and polarization in our society and politics. You mentioned earlier the opioid crisis, uh, homelessness. Is, is there a need, a, a new need for rebellion and for punk music? And, and can we ever get back there again? Um, obviously not to that place, but, you know, Angelo Moore tells you, John, in the book about there used to be a time when uh, you could listen to black radio and hear Blondie on it. You know, are we too kind of fractured in the way that we approach media and so many aspects of our life to, to, to do that again? I, I don't feel qualified to, <laughs> to really comment on, on what the media does and, and how it uh, either unites or separates us. I feel very qualified to answer that question. <laughs> you know, the media has, uh, I think, like, you know, you, you got your NPR, you got your underground media, you've got your um, free expression, free forums of, you know, you got YouTube channels, you got all these people trying. And I think a, a lot of the, the people that, that um, criticize, you know, YouTubers or alternative media uh, people or people that are just trying to dig at the truth, whether you go along with it or not, how far out it is or not. So there is a punk rock. I think it's the underground, you know, the, the the people that are out there really risking their lives to to try to dig at stuff. You know, whether you love them or hate them, there's like someone like Julian Assange. That's the punk rock thing right there. Mm -hmm. Chelsea Manning, whether you think that's treason or not, I'm not to judge those people. I just know that they were trying to do what punk rock was, which is, mm -hmm. hey, hold up a mirror to society. Look what you people are doing. we got to stop this. You know, smash the corporate. You know, we were we were anti-corporatists is what we were mm. for the most part. And then we got all sucked up into it just like everyone. <laughs> well, now you have pretty and yeah, punk I mean, doll lines in toy stores. Is there? Yeah. Really? I don't go to toy stores. Pretty, well, we, we look. Come on. My, <laughs> pretty we, and pink, so it's a plan. Pretty, pretty and, and punk. Pink. But, John, do oh, you feel no. qualified to talk about, you know, this idea back in its or in original days, punk refused to be politically correct. What does that mean today? 
Uh, well, it meant and means that we had to change one of the lines of Los Angeles. I didn't really appreciate that, you know, but I, I didn't want to suffer um, having to explain, you know. The, in, in the line, it says, she started to hate every N-word and, and Jew. Mm-hmm. And so you can't say that. You can't say that word because it offends people. And, and I understand it, but the reason I used it, I wrote it to begin with, is to hold up a mirror to people and say, um, in 1970 seven or eight whenever we wrote it using that word was it was it was like arcane it was like this this shouldn't this this shouldn't mean anything but it does and so take a look at it people and and nowadays we changed it to uh we we didn't do the song for a couple months and then we agonized over it and then eventually changed the word to to, she started to hate every christian and jew Hmm. So, which is there you go like, you know, it was kind whatever. of neat though because that's the update of the song yeah. you know that's who they hate so yeah it's i, I don't know well it's, it's it's very confusing confusing times but for somebody who's growing up today maybe one of those kids looking for something different what would you say to them now you know they can't go to la and live in a you know two thousand dollar a month apartment and make punk rock right? sure they can they well, just they, have, they, they, there's the, you know, you live on the outskirts at, you absolutely can. There's, well, I would say you, you, you can live in LA with a whole bunch of people in a, in a, in a crappy place for sure. Yeah. But that's what everyone did back then. Anyway, nobody lived in an expensive, nice place. Hardly. Right. No, all, no we all, all lived places. in little crappy places, three or yeah. four people to live. <laughs> yeah. But they were, you know, $180 yeah. a, a month oh, yeah, for sure. where there is a will, there's a way, but also, you know, the legacy of, of what punk rock stood for and stands for is is that you can apply it to different art forms. There are a lot of uh, people that are very influenced by punk rock that are that are coming up nowadays. Um, girls Rock Camp has, the, the girls that started in that have grown up and now they're in their 20s and they're kicking ass. I would say one thing though that is, is still somewhat weird is that um, when you said punk and pink or pretty and punk. Pretty and punk. Which is a play on pretty and pink. Yeah. You can see that no matter how far you get, they're still going to try to reduce you to a sex object. And that, that is so funny to me because it's like, yeah, girls can do it. for them. And then you see these women in bands and they're like basically strippers. And it's like, yeah, that's a punk rock woman up there, man. And when you say the girls look at, oh, she's so smart and she's so tough and she's so cool. It's like that is never going to be the goal of, of the music industry or most people. It's yeah. sex sells. I think I worked with some rock, rock camps in L.A. and Orange County, and I think one of the things I liked about it the best was that that wouldn't – because they were girls for one thing, but that just that's not how they start out. They don't start out with that. So they get a good foundation of learning to coil up your cord when you're done playing. You don't just leave it for someone else to do. That's important, not, mm-hmm. not wearing the shortest skirt possible. That's not what's important. It's important to be a musician and important to be – um, you know, one with your band and to, and to, and to be considerate and, and, and have some responsibility. And you see it all over social media, um, right on righteous boys and girls, men and women in punk rock bands. So you absolutely can do it. You go, kids. Get out there. <laughs> Play the punk rock. 
<laughs> and and uh, you know, I mean, I, I hate to keep going back to this to this book, but that's one of the things I say at the end. We're all here to just be part of a continuum, and we're all here to be brave to to allow someone who's coming up behind us to to you know help them out. And uh, when somebody else passes away, uh, you go, damn, that's that's a drag. But they they were out there and they did their thing, and they deserve honor and they deserve credit. You know, that's one of the reasons that X is still playing. You know, not only is it our work, that's our career, but every time I see uh, a young woman who's 16 or 18 and and she's looking up at Xene going like, damn, she's cool and wow, she's something and she's like ferocious, I think we did our job. Well, we're going to just hold on to that. Yeah. John Doe. We'll see you in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, thank you, you so Atlanta. much. Exine Cervenka, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Very thoughtful. And, and uh, thank you for facilitating that. That's great. Exine Cervenka, an artist and founding member of the legendary punk band X. They're playing Sunday at the Tabernacle. John Doe is also a founding member of X. His new book, More Fun in the New World, dives into the legacy of L.A. punk music. It's out now. There's going to be a book discussion and signing hosted by Acapella Books, also on Sunday at 2, but at the Highland Inn Ballroom Lounge. That is it for On Second Thought today. We're going to leave you with another song from X. This is I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts. This conversation was part of our September music series, and you can follow along with our coverage and add your own perspective using the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can find us on Facebook at GPB Radio's On Second Thought. And let us know, what do you think is today's version of punk rock? On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. We had help today from Alex Word. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar, probably gritting his teeth right now. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thoughts.